The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. Welcome to Know the Score. I'm your host, Don DeLorente, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dwayne. What's going on, Dwayne? Nothing much, man. Uh, Glad to be back on the CSPN. It's been a little minute. Life be life in, but all's well over here. That's good, man. That's good to hear. Yeah, man, we've been a little bit more infrequent than I'd like to be, but, you know, the sports are kind of infrequent right now, too, so, um, you know, but so true. we're back in the fold, letting everybody know, you know, what is up in the sports world here lately, so thank you for listening to Know the Score on the CSPN. You can find us on the web at CSPN.us. You can also subscribe to the show by uh, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Switch Radio, all you have to do is search for KTS Pod dash the CSPN. So Dwayne, we had the final four over the weekend. Um, we'll start off with Baylor, just overwhelming Houston to advance to the national championship game. Um, they were shooting hot. They were playing great aggressive defense. Uh, Houston did not shoot as well as they had been throughout the tournament and throughout the season from the three-point land. And ultimately, you know, Baylor got a big lead, never gave it up. And uh, this was a snooze fest in the first national semifinal. It definitely was. I don't remember much of this game. I think the only time I kind of turned it on, Clinton Grimes was building a new stadium in Indianapolis with all the bricks he was putting up. But, um, yeah, Baylor, they're just another team on another level. Um, as great as Houston had, this was a great run by the Cougs, but they just ran into a juggernaut known as the Baylor Bears. Scott Drew is such an amazing coach. So, yeah, snooze fest, um, status quo, really. Uh, big up to both of these teams, though. It was the first time they'd been in the Final Four in a, a very long time. Uh, first time the Houston Cougars had been since 1984. Uh, actually, yeah, actually, uh, Houston went three years in a row to the Final Four. They went in 82, 83, and 84. And I think this was the first time Baylor went to the Final Four since, like, 1954. 1950. No, 1950. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, big, big... Uh, you know, um, gaps and appearances to the final four for both of these teams. So uh, just give a shout out to Houston for, uh, you know, getting back there in a place that in the eighties, they were there, like I said, three times in a row, Uh, lost um, two championship games and lost in the semifinals. Right. And yeah, yeah, those, um, yeah, those teams in the, in the eighties, I mean, they were, they were something special. Uh, Hall of Famers and and for Kelvin Sampson, I mean, all the things he's been through with the show cause, the issues at Indiana, and for him to get to the promised land, ironically, 
it started in Bloomington at Assembly Hall where uh, his show call started, and for him to get all the way to the final four, that's that's something to be uh, very accomplished about. Right, right. Next up, Gonzaga. They needed a buzzer beater from just inside half court versus UCLA to survive and advance to the national title game, keep the undefeated season alive in hopes of accomplishing the perfect season. Uh, This was a, you know, all-time classic NCAA tournament game, Final Four game, uh, an overtime game at that. Um, Tip of the cap to UCLA for, you know, just making that awesome run throughout the tournament. They upset Michigan to get here. And, uh, you know, we thought we were going to get double overtime, but Jalen Suggs. Uh, banked in uh, a shot that you're going to see for the next 40 years as long as there's an NCAA tournament um, and they need to hype it. So uh, this was just, like I said, an amazing game, an amazing college basketball game and uh, one for the ages. Yeah, two words, instant classic. This was an amazing game. I was actually on the phone with my mom and my dad, mainly my mom because my dad was asleep, but um, mainly my mom and, you know, my mom was for UCLA, I was for Gonzaga, and and uh, this was just a real back and forth. I think a lot of people had Gonzaga as a huge uh, favorite to win over UCLA, but Mick Cronin, the job he did in this tournament um, from the first four to the final four. Uh, another eleven seed getting to the final four. Uh, this is the fifth, fourth or fifth one in the 21st century. LSU in 86, George Mason in 2006, VCU in 11, um, Loyola, Chicago in 18, and now a UCLA. And, and for... Um, Gonzaga, I mean, this is just another team that's been a machine all season long, and they they were down. They kept battling bad. They just found they found a way, and everybody knows the two, the three major words in the tournament, survive and advance. Gonzaga did exactly that. Yep, just get to the next game. Then, on Monday night, we had the penultimate game of the season game that should have taken place during the regular season but got canceled due to COVID. What everybody in the country would conceive or concede to be the two best teams, Gonzaga taking on Baylor. And Baylor dominates Gonzaga from the opening tip to win the national championship. Final score, 86-70. to uh, They never trailed in the game. They started out the game on a 9 nothing run. They were up 23-9 at the 12-minute break, and uh, the route was on from there. Yeah, this was the penultimate game. I wanted to see this game, and it was anticlimactic. Um, Yeah, Baylor just took Gonzaga to the woodshed early, and and unfortunately, you know, I wanted I wanted Gonzaga to win because you know Baylor is a Big Twelve rival at the end of the day. Uh, any Big Twelve team not named Kansas, I don't want to really see win. But 
it didn't work out that way for for me. So uh, congratulations to Baylor on the national championship, first one in school history. I think that's also a good thing because, you know, we got to see a school um, actually take a title for the very first time. Right. Um, you just have to commend Baylor uh, for the defense uh, that they played uh, in these two games in Indianapolis at the Final Four and for their shooting. I mean, I've never really trusted Baylor in the tournament just for that reason. It's because, you know, they don't, they've never really been a team that had uh, a lot of good shooting. But uh, this year's team was a lot different than they have been in the past, where they had really good big men, but kind of suspect shooters and guards. They had really good guards and shooters and some just okay big men. And uh, give a yeah. give a big uh, tip of the cat t- to uh, Scott Drew for changing up a lot of what he has done in the past, especially defensively. Uh, Baylor mostly played zone that one three one. And uh, this year they kind of switched up to this switching man-to-man. And uh, with the athleticism of their big guys uh, and the strength of their guards, they were able to really just hound uh, people defensively, get after you, cause a lot of turnovers. I thought that a big key to this game was they did not let Gonzaga get in transition. Uh, the few times right. that they did miss shots in the first half, uh, they did get back, made it, you know, Gonzaga not be able to get those easy baskets that they've been getting in a lot of these games just by getting yeah. the ball up the court uh, quickly. Um, you know, so that was a, another limiting factor. Uh, in the game, along with Baylor's uh, great defense and and just fantastic shooting in the first half. Good gosh. Absolutely. absolutely. And also, I mean, since we're on the subject of Baylor, I mean, look at, look at what Scott Drew had to come to Baylor with in 2003. Uh, the program was literally on life support. Yeah. Really came close to the death penalty after the Patrick Dennehy, Carlton Dotson, Dave Bliss with his um, shady shenanigans as well, and for Scott Drew to build this program up from the from the ground up, literally they rose from the ashes. They became a perennial power. Um, you know, they won the Big Twelve. Uh, they won the Big Twelve for the first time, and that was actually the last time Baylor won a conference title was 1950. The same. Year they went to the Final Four, so um, this team definitely they're going to be etched in the annals of time, and and um, I can definitely say uh, commendable job. I mean, Scott Drew was a candidate for the Indiana coaching job, but it's like why would he even want to even think about leaving what he has built in Waco? Either going back to Indiana. I mean, he's from there. I mean, that's Homer Drew's son. You know, Homer Drew, legendary coach in Valpo, Bryce Drew's younger brother. But, yeah, why why leave Waco when you have something really, really good going on? Yep, yep. Um, especially after the hard work that he's put in, uh, like you said, uh, coming up from the ashes of, you know, the program almost being eradicated after, you know, murder drugs and cover up um you know uh, with the dave bliss uh tenure 
So, yes, he has come a very long way from, you know, needing walk-ons just to fill the team to now having the national championship reside in Waco, Texas. Um, it happened on April's Fools, but it was the truth. Roy Williams retired as head coach at North Carolina after 18 seasons at North Carolina, 33 seasons in total, those 15 years with Kansas as well. Uh, three national titles and five Final Four appearances with the Tar Heels. Another four uh, Final Four appearances with the Jayhawks. Uh, Roy Williams said that he felt that he was no longer the right man for the job. Uh, he said that he still has the passion and the want to and the desire to coach. Um, he talked about um, how last year they had six games that they lost that came down to a buzzer beater and they lost all six. And he really was beating himself up on some things where he felt like he was slipping, wasn't reminding the team to foul against Clemson. And they came down, hit a three-point, sent the game into overtime. They eventually lost and lost the longest home winning streak against any team in the history of college basketball. Um, he pointed out to a couple of other instances where he just felt like he wasn't as sharp and as focused for those kids last year. So he comes back around this year and he says that he just felt like he could never get the kids to totally buy in to the Carolina way and Carolina basketball the way that he needed them to or felt that he wanted them to. So he decided that he would step aside and let someone else guide the ship at the University of North Carolina. Man, I, that was a shocker. And that was uh, something that you knew was going to happen eventually, but you're never ready for it to actually happen. Um, if anybody that knows me knows that Roy was definitely, I mean, in my lifetime, I've only seen two head coaches at Kansas uh, because Kansas has only had eight in its 100-plus year history. So uh, Roy Williams and Bill Self. So the 97 Jayhawks team that I feel like was probably the best Kansas team of all time that should have won the national title but lost Arizona in the Sweet 16. Um, that was one of my favorite teams uh, growing up, the 2003 team that lost to Syracuse in the national championship by three. The I hate famous, you, Huck and Wark. The famous, yeah. the famous interview. Uh, so, Roy, yeah. uh, so what do you think about uh, the opening at North Carolina? I could give a shit about North Carolina. Carolina right now. <laughs> I got, I got 13 kids in there that I love. But here's, here's my thing with um, that situation with Roy. I mean. A lot of people don't really know this or they try to really forget this, really. Um, there's so many links between Kansas and North Carolina. Right. Um, Dean, Dean Smith graduated from Kansas. Right. He learned under Paul Gallon. Right. And a lot of people at Up Rupp, legendary coach in Kentucky, was teammates with Dean Smith as well. The birth so, of uh, the birth of Kentucky and UNC basketball is Kansas. Exactly. 
and they're and a lot of people at the you know six degrees of separation they're like one person removed from james naismith exactly exactly where the original rules reside at our field house right at the debris center um the when roy williams came to ku and of course when he came kansas was on probation because of larry brown uh, was recruiting violations after he left in 88, after the Jayhawks won the title, or 89, actually. Uh, when Roy Williams took over, um, and he led, he led Kansas for 14 years. In 2000, of course, when Dean Smith retired, uh, he was a top choice for the job, and he elected to stay at Kansas. So when 2003 came around, of course, the lose the national title, you're not really trying to focus on the opening of Carolina. But there was one thing that Dean did say to Roy, though. We we called you two times, there wouldn't be a third. And so that's what led Roy to go back home. And I was hurt by this. <laughs> I was hurt by this, but at the time I was also 19. So me at 30... By 36 going on 37, didn't really understand it as much as I do now. Um, and Roy said one thing also when he did leave KU, and that was he would never come out the visiting tunnel at Allen Fieldhouse. And he stayed, dead gummy, he stayed true to his word. Um, he, he took there the was worst whooping of his life in the 2008. To, National semi yeah. God. Uh, yeah, that 40 to 12 start. This um, one is over. As Billy yeah, Patton that, declared at the like four minute freaking timeout in the first half. Yeah, that I was not, that was the first meeting, and I definitely was not ready for it. Like, I literally was, Roy that was like one of the. Yeah, he he was he wasn't and and um that OA team was special though. Um uh that OA Kansas team, like in retrospect, that was really like a very special team, but um and then there were there were uh, some really good moments, you know, that and I think a lot of people in Lawrence finally really forgave Roy. When he did, even after Kansas blasted Carolina that night, and he stayed in San Antonio to watch the title game with the Jayhawks support. And I think that really kind of made a lot of people who soured on Roy when he left. That was like the ultimate, like, okay, we can really finally let this go. And even when Kansas won their title, that <laughs> they really let it go then. So. Roy Williams is going to get his moment at Allen Fieldhouse most definitely. And I thank him for 15 great years at KU. And, of course, I'm happy he won his titles at Carolina as well. And salute to one of the greatest. I always said that Kansas was my second favorite college basketball team in the 90s because of Roy Williams. Um, always thought that Roy Williams never got the respect that he deserved as far as his coaching, in-game coaching. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of people, um, especially when he came back to North Carolina, um, just, you know, just up in arms about Roy and the way that he did things and how he didn't deviate a lot from the same things that, um, you know, Dean Smith would do and, you know, slow to, you know, take players out of the lineup and adjust and things like that. But the one thing that was always consistent, even in the years, the last two years that were very lean as far as the wins go, his teams and his players got better. And if you stuck with Roy Williams, which was what he wanted you to do for at least three years, you got a chance Mm -hmm. to play in the Final Four. And that was all that he would guarantee kids to come to Carolina. Hey, if you stay with me for three years, you'll have a chance to win a national championship. Um, Yeah. He was just a, you know, a guy who, like he said, he'll tell you at all turns, just, you know, learned everything he could from Dean Smith and just copied it. Um, He added a couple of twists here and there. But, I mean, for the most part, if you were to watch a North Carolina game coached by Dean Smith and a North Carolina game coached by Rory Williams, you would see a lot of the same things. Uh, Right. So that is why the newly hired coach of North Carolina is Hubert Davis, former NBA player, former UNC player, and former assistant coach under Roy Williams for the last nine years. Uh, Roy Williams uh, made a demand uh, to uh, Hubert Davis to leave ESPN, come join the coaching staff about a decade ago. Uh, Hubert Davis uh, did that. And today he was officially announced as the new men's basketball coach at North Carolina. I like the hire. I really, really do. I always said that when Roy retired, I I was like, Carolina cannot miss with this hire. They have to keep it in the family. And they did exactly that. Um, just the fact that uh, Hubert Davis, he patiently waited for his opportunity to take over. And this man was a really good, I mean, not only was he a great, um, great assistant under Roy, he was a good, he was a damn good basketball player. And he had a nice career in the league, um, you know, playing first round pick. Uh, he was part of those Knicks teams in the 90s that uh, were definitely uh, probably should have won an NBA title. Yeah, they were in the mix for the, for the, for the championship. Yeah. And so, like, those were, that's when the Knicks were, like, you know, made those, those New York teams made the NBA a whole lot of fun. I always say there's certain teams when they're good and relevant that the NBA is a whole lot better. New York was, was exactly that. Um, and Roy did exactly what Dean did for him. Um, just really just groomed him to be, be the uh, head coach. I mean, he, uh, if you really look at it, uh, Roy was an assistant under Dean from 78 to 88. And then he took over Kansas in 89. And then, Hubert Davis, probably around the same amount of time. Uh, nine years, came back to UNC as an assistant. And then uh, and then he takes over in 2021 for the 
21-22 season. So, um, so yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how this uh, goes. And, and, yeah, so they did a good job keeping it in the Carolina family. It was probably a no-brainer on who was going to who was going to take over and I think they got the right guy for the job and I really wish him nothing but great success and uh, as a head coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels yeah he's taking the exact same path that Roy Williams took um, North Carolina is one of the few um, teams that still have like a JV squad and uh, Hubert Davis coaching experience has come from coaching the JV squad, the same thing that Roy Williams did uh, before he became the coach at Kansas. So very similar uh, in a lot of ways. And I also think this, um, Dean Smith was integrated the ACC. Basically he recruited Charlie Scott to North Carolina and brought him in. And he was the first African-American player in the whole conference. I think Roy Williams saw a chance here also with Hubert Davis to kind of be like, hey, you know, it's been long enough. I think this did. I think they can handle having a black coach. And that's another yeah. thing that is uh, very monumental uh, for North Carolina basketball. This is their very first African-American head coach as well. It's not lost on Hubert Davis. He definitely has been mentioning that. And so, you know, it's going to be a, a fantastic journey as a Tar Heel fan to watch him grow. Uh, hopefully the fan base will let him grow. Um, hopefully he will, you know, make a lot of moves that will, you know, show his personality and, and put his stamp on the program. But the basic fundamentals of what North Carolina basketball is and has been for the last 50 years will definitely mm-hmm. remain intact with Hubert Davis. That's the case. Yeah. And it's funny how you mentioned uh, Dean Smith. Um, it's kind of, and how he helped integrate the ACC. Um, James Naismith and Fog Allen also, even though KU didn't um, allow him to really play on the team, but John McClendon went to Kansas and he was able to study under uh, Dr. James Naismith and Paul Gallon as well. And he became a legendary head coach among the HBCUs at uh, Central and Hampton, Tennessee State. It was Tennessee A&I at the time and Kentucky the State as well. The inventor of what I call go-go basketball. Yes. John McClendon and then Ben Job. Yes. Basically, we're the first ones who realize that if I have better talent, I need to have the ball more times. And so right. that's a Dean Smith thing as well. He, he always said that he likes to golf. So he Dean Smith would say, you know what, for three holes, I could probably be better than Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholas. But for 18, I got no chance. <laughs> so that's what he, <laughs> so that's what his philosophy was as far as. North Carolina and the way they played. They always played up tempo. They always tried to push the pace because he needed, he felt like if the more times he could have the ball and a chance to score, the more times his talent and his execution would win out. Right. 
Yep. So if you ever, you know, know anything about Carolina and Roy Williams, they always, you know, tried to get the game up in the 80s, sometimes the 90s. They tried to, you know, have, you know, 70 shot attempts at least. Um, so, yep, it's going to be quite a quite a different looking feel. But, you know, so glad that Roy Williams did come back home. So glad that I was able to celebrate three national championships, uh, you know, in the Dean Dome because of him. Um, you know, he was labeled the best coach to never win it. And uh, he won three and went to four national championship games in the, uh, you know, 18 years that he was at Carolina. So a very successful yeah. run. Uh, speaking of bringing back uh, former players to try to, you know, bring that old thing back, Indiana, they hired former Hawks and Knicks coach Mike Woodson as their new head coach. Mike Woodson was a part of uh, Indiana uh, back in the 70s. Uh, he was coached by Bob Knight, uh, Indiana, seeing what um, Jawan Howard did with Michigan over the last couple of years, uh, bringing that tradition back to Michigan, uh, they're trying to kind of get that same thing uh, going back again over in Indiana. I think that's kind of one of the things that's made North Carolina so successful even after the uh, retirement of Dean Smith. uh, ESPN over the, I think it was this summer, maybe last summer, but I think it was this summer, they did a thing about replacing a legend. And they basically went through, like, all the big-time schools, like, you know, Kansas and North Carolina and Indiana and, you know, whomever else at Kentucky and all those schools who have had, you know, legendary coaches and they've had to replace them either two or three times. And they were kind of giving out grades or whatever. And, you know, of course, North Carolina got, like, the best grade because of Roy Williams and everything. But my thing was that they've never – tried to not shy away from the Dean Smith thing. You know what I'm saying? They, they're they like, hey, we need to continue this lineage, this family, this, you know, whatever. Even Matt Doherty, who didn't work out, was still somebody who played for Dean Smith, coached under Roy. So, you know, the yeah. Carolina was there. Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, you know, all these schools who've had these names and these traditions – once they kind of, you know, separate and try to separate themselves from their past, it seems like they go wayward and they go through a stretch where they don't, uh, where they aren't relevant. Right. And, you know, Michigan kind of went through that for a little while, but then John Beeline. St. John's. Yep, yeah, yeah, there you go, St. John's. Georgetown, to, to a degree. Um, but yeah. now they've kind of gone back to the Big John legacy with, with, with Patrick Ewing. Patrick Ewing, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, it just seems like, you know, these these other colleges don't embrace their past as much as North Carolina has when it comes to, uh, you know, replacing the coaches for the basketball teams. And then they kind of lose that a little bit. And then they're, you know, out there just searching and searching until maybe they can get it right. Kind of like how – you know, Kentucky was in the weeds for a while, and then they got Rick Pitino. And then Rick Pitino got them to a point where they could get a John Calipari later on, you know? Right. But when it came time to hire a new coach, they stuck with the Pitino, you know, legacy there and went with Tubby Smith. And that worked out for him good as well for a time. And then, yeah. you know, the Tubby Smith thing did not end well at Kentucky. But, it's, but instead of, like, trying to be like, hey, let's – keep it going the patino thing worked and let's get somebody else from there you know 
It, it didn't. Travis Ford is a yeah. coach. You know, they could have got him, but it didn't work. Yeah. Out. And then they kind of went through a little dol- doldrum period there until they got Calipari. Right. Right. And then it's funny how you mentioned Tubby Smith because Tubby Smith went home to High Point. Right. 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 And, and then, and and then also it's kind of like when you look at it, uh, you know. And since it is really hard when you talk about replacing legends, because it's like for Kansas, I mean, like I said, they only had eight coaches in their 100-plus-year history. Right. Um, you know, and James Naismith, the inventor of the game, is the only one with a losing record. And so, um, but the degrees of separation, like you said, six degrees of separation, Paul Gallon coaches Dean Smith, uh, Larry Brown, Smith disciple. He is he takes over from eighty three to eighty eight. Roy Williams, another Smith disciple, and then you have uh, Bill Self, who was a graduate assistant under Larry Brown, as well, who takes over. So the it's really crazy how they everything is just so close knit. Between between the schools, um, between Kansas and Carolina, uh, they're really kind of almost like intertwined in time, and and it's really it's really fascinating at the end of the day when you really look at it. Oh yeah, man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. See, like the AD at the time, by Frederick, went to Carolina, so that's how Roy Williams even got a chance to even be the coach. At Kansas was because there was a Carolina connection there, Kansas and North Carolina connection. So yeah, man, it is it is definitely deep, and um, you know it seems to flow both ways, which is pretty cool. It's not kind of like a one way deal, you know. They, right. Y'all help us out, we help y'all out type of situation. <laughs> exactly. Uh, right. So, and yeah. then, and speaking of um, speaking of uh, Bill Self, uh, he signed a lifetime contract. To stay with Kansas, and if that kind of just tells. Trouble, though, ain't he? If he was going to get in trouble, he he basically, I want to say that's basically Kansas is giving the NCAA the middle finger because you know a lot F-E-O, of coaches are there. If your allegations. Yes, exactly. Because most people leave when they have this much hot water. Mm-hmm. Bill Self has said, I'm staying the whole time. And yes, I mean, there's always links to him going to the NBA and the Spurs because his son is actually the GM of the D League team in San Antonio, or the G League team in San Antonio, the Austin Spurs, Tyler. So, you know, it's like son could hire Pops to be head coach, but Bill Self said, I'm not going anywhere. I want to fight this through, and Kansas basically said, we're going to stick with you. So I really thought that was pretty interesting how they basically, they're really going to, they're going to battle it out. We'll see what the independent panel says this summer and see what happens with Kansas uh, and their future from there. Hey man, it worked out good for Carolina, so you know, just, <laughs> right? Just and how know. many times? And how many times had it worked out for Miami football? <laughs> <laughs> right. So just you know, just keep the faith. 
Right. Exactly. So I'm uh and they're still getting recruits, so we'll see what happens. I'm I just I'm ready for it to be over with. So So that puts the plug on a very eventful college basketball season. Uh, to say the least, uh, you know, they, they did manage to get through the whole season. Uh, they There were some teams who had, you know, a lot of pauses and breaks, like uh, Virginia Tech was a team who missed like two months uh, straight uh, due to, um, you know, COVID outbreaks and things like that. But all in all, you know, these kids, they did what they needed to do. They sacrificed a lot to make the season happen. And, um, you yeah. know, hopefully they can go and enjoy their summers and, uh, right. you know, be speaking safe of, and healthy. Speaking of that, I mean, give it, let's talk about teams that really had to battle through everything. The Stanford women who won the national title, um, they were basically on the road the whole season uh, because of the restrictions in California. And, they were able to go through all of that and win the uh, national title. And what I thought the women's game was a better game than the men's game. Oh yeah. Uh, last oh. night. <laughs> and, and yeah, that one came down to the last shot. Ari McDonald uh, just missed it for Arizona. What did Barnes yeah. draw up though? I, I know she had something she, on, her, on her chalkboard better than just pass the ball, let her dribble yeah. around for three seconds and then she, she was determined to make sure that I think she coached out that last play with a motion versus strategy because she wanted to make sure Ari got the last shot and that was not a good that was not a good execution at all I mean even though the shot almost went in I mean that was Kobe-esque uh, rest in peace Kobe that was pretty Kobe-esque with like four people surrounding surrounding you and and um, she was determined to make sure that her star got the last shot but I would have drew up something a lot better than that so I think that was probably just uh, a bad coaching mistake there and you can't do that with a legend like Tara Vandermeer on the other side you just can't do that now especially with so little time on the clock you know what I'm saying it wasn't right. like she had 10 seconds where you know what I'm saying she could oh. dance around and then realize oh I can't do nothing and then pass it with five seconds ago and maybe get it back no that's what's right. that. so yeah um, yeah so yeah, great, great congratulations to the Stanford women uh, pulling off um you know, they beat South Carolina. Uh, also, shout out to the Arizona women who beat uh, UConn to get to the uh, championship game. So, two upsets in the women's Final Four led to a very good national championship game. This is Know the Score. I'm your host, Don DeLorente. I'm joined by my co-host, Dwayne. Uh, we're about to shift it over now to the NFL because, you know, the NFL never stops. The season is always going. Um Unfortunately for Deshaun Watson, though, man, this has been a, a rather tumultuous offseason. Uh, yeah. Trying to get out of Houston to a better situation for his professional career. And then all of a sudden, we've learned a lot of things about his personal life that uh, he may not. We probably uh, didn't want to know. Yeah, that we definitely did not uh, want to know. We've gotten a lot of uh, information, uh, allegedly, about how he likes to get down. 
and um, it involves massage parlors and yeah, and the things mm-hmm. that go on there. Uh, I'm pretty sure Bob Kraft is like, hmm, that's some things I never even thought of. <laughs> so uh, up until just recently, uh, all of these uh, lawsuits that have been coming uh, forward, all the women filing lawsuits coming forward, have been of the civil suit variety, uh, nothing criminal. But last week, the Houston Police Department did launch an investigation concerning Deshaun Watson after uh, a complainant filed a report against him. So now they're starting to look a little bit deeper as far as the police involvement. So um, curious timing, some would say. Very, very curious. I'm glad that I'm glad that point was brought up uh, because. I mean, man's trying to get out of Houston and all these allegations start to come about. He's pissed with Cal McNair. He's hates the moves that they made by basically the Texans just really sold on one thing and it's like you getting told you're getting six hundred dollars and you only get sixty cents. So, um, um, it was basically, it's just really fishy now that the same lawyer who has filed all these lawsuits on behalf of these women seems to be friends with Cal McNair at the same time. So it's kind of like, yeah, the timing of it is really, really fishy, but this doesn't diminish the seriousness of the allegations by any means or stretches right. of the imagination. Right. And the similarities of all the instances as well. Right. You know, it's you know, it's one thing if, you know, hey, you know, everybody's got a different story about me. You see these people not telling the truth because ain't nothing consistent. But uh, unfortunately right. for uh, a lot of these um, accusations, the, the stories seem to kind of and the situation seemed to play out very similarly uh, in this case of Deshaun Watson. But, um, yeah, so, it, it, you know, it, this actually may work against the Texans if they actually try to, you know, play some dirty pool here because, you know, it's going to get him maybe out the league or at the very least make them force him to be traded because, you know, the city may be like, nah, we can't have him representing us you know right yeah exactly and and at the same i mean the lawsuits are up to 22 you've had two of the women speak out uh but there have been some defenders who have been uh masseuses masseuse women who have uh women masseuses i should say my apologies for my twist of words but um they, about 18 women have defended Deshaun Watson saying that he has never gone out of the scope. So, it's kind of like point-counterpoint who's really telling the truth here. Right. And so, it's really the classic there are three sides to the story. One side, the other side, and the truth in the middle. Right. And so, it, so it's like... But if there's anybody that is going to find it out, 
that NFL investigative team, they gonna find the truth. They will. Why you think I mean, Roger Goodell gave Michael Vick a chance to be like, you sure it ain't nothing else over there going on? Right. Because I mean, they had to drop the NFL man. They find out everything about these boys prior to the draft. They find out about what's going on with these owners when they get in trouble. So, yeah, yeah man, their investigative Ray, team is the truth. Ray Rice. <laughs> right. I mean, Earl Thomas last season. Right. With that, with that craziness. So, yeah, they, yeah, that NFL investigative team, they, they are, they're worse than I am. <laughs> <laughs> they are definitely worse than I am. But, um, if he is deleting some of these Instagram DMs, that's suspicious. That's some suspect behavior too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the 49ers, they have made a bold move in this offseason. Uh, they have made a trade to move up to the number three pick in this year's draft. Presumably, they're looking to take a quarterback. And by most accounts, that quarterback might be Mac Jones. Who? <laughs> Mac Jones. You got to say it like that. Got right. To. Like all year when he be throwing that, that that touchdown passes and I'll be watching at the bar, that's why I, I just scream out. And then I, you know, take the phone number, of course. <laughs> but, yeah, it was um... – it was a, a very, very bold move. I mean, they know what they are looking to get. And and um, it's really, I mean, of course, we know who's number one. That's no surprise there. But it would be very interesting to see. Uh, who the Jets get a number two and then the Niners get a number three. Sounds like they're going to get Zach Wilson, man. You see that pro day? Oh, yeah, I did. You see that one throw, that, that roll out to the left? and Roll out to the left. That was a perfect dime. Like, yeah, I was. <laughs> launched that jump about 55 right in my man hand. He had to actually kind of slow down to get there. In time. Right. So it was actually right on target. Yeah. That was like, mm-hmm. We've been to pick this man, yes. even though you know, <laughs> they may not actually, you know, need it. But they was like, yeah, that's too much to pass up right there. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then, yeah, so there's some really, there's some really good talent out there that's going to be uh, at the quarterback position. I mean, you got. I mean, aside from Trevor Lawrence, because he's going to Jacksonville. I mean, Zach Wilson, uh, you got Trey Lance, you got Justin Fields out there, uh, Matt Jones. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of potential franchise-changing quarterbacks. And um, all I know is, um, I know one thing, um, there won't be no there will be change in Carolina, but they're not going young on this one. <laughs> well, the Panthers, they traded for Sam Darnold. Segway. 
they gave up a six-round pick in this year's draft and a second and third-round picks in the next couple of years. Um, I thought this was a marvelous move by the Panthers uh, because you didn't have to give up your number eight pick this year, which means that you can still go out and get the offensive lineman that you definitely need. You got a quarterback that has experience, so you didn't have to go out and draft um, anybody. And you got a guy who's still under his rookie contract, so you can actually kind of get a test run with him and see if he's something that you want to invest in later on down the line. So I thought that the Panthers front office just hit a home run with this one. Okay. So I will tell you my initial reaction and then my reaction after I calmed the hell down. (laughs) And I probably gave myself away. So my initial reaction was like, what is this team thinking getting Sam Darnold. And a lot of my a lot of my friends were not fans of this as well. But I had time to cool down, had time to really just uh, think about it here. And I was like, you know what? This is really not a bad move. And and I basically listed the reasons why. One, he's reunited with his favorite target, Robbie Anderson. True. Uh, Just look at, there's a minute 45 second clip from the NFL Twitter account that basically shows Sam Darnold throwing down to Robbie Anderson. And so, if Sam Darnold has Robbie on one side, He's going to have another good receiver on the other side with DJ Moore. And then he's worked out with Christian McCaffrey in the offseason for the past couple of years. So they already got familiarity with one another. So, with all that being said, Sam Darnold didn't have all this in New York. And he really didn't have it when Robbie Anderson left for Carolina. Name... Name a receiver from the Jets in the 2020 season. Uh, Jamison Crowder, only just because I know he was a free agent from Washington. <laughs> but, yeah, that's me cheating. Uh, aside from aside from Jamison Crowder, name another receiver. Uh, yeah, you got me. <laughs> right, so, and he didn't have that great of a line either. Um, it was a miracle the Jets won two games uh, that se- this past season. Uh, with Carolina's offensive line issues, especially in the guard position, I thought the tackles were were fine. Uh, Gray Little's going to develop pretty nicely. They got Daryl Williams on the other side. The tackles are fine. It's the interior line that Carolina needs to shore up. Um, they did sign uh, Pat Elfline in the offseason, who was with the Vikings. I think Matt Paradis didn't work out as well as we thought it would. Um, but they got Pat Elfline at the center position. If Carolina can just get some better guard play, because Chris Lee was a definite liability, just look at the uh, Falcons and the Panthers in the primetime game in Charlotte this 
past season, and you'll see why I was really or look at any game with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers like it was really not a good look. But uh, back to Darnold here, I mean, if you also look at the fact that and I also told discuss this with my best friend too, I told him like, look, we look, we actually have a quarterback that will take chances and shots down the field. I mean, don't get me wrong, I I do enjoy I enjoyed having Teddy Bridgewater in Carolina. I did enjoy the fact he got an opportunity. He deserved the opportunity. But 60 minutes of dinking and dunking down the field is not going to cut it, especially when you are in a two-minute drill and you lose at least seven games by a possession because you're not taking any chances down the field. That's, uh, that's a liability, especially in a – Joe Brady offense where you're trying to get the ball down the field anyway. Yeah, it's going to be a positive, I think. I, I think that if Ryan Tannehill has shown anybody anything, it's that if you get from underneath the coaching of Adam Gase, you automatically get your talents back. So Yes, exactly. <laughs> that was actually my third point in my Facebook in my Facebook post about the Sam Darnold trade, just look at Ryan Tannehill. We thought Ryan Tannehill was one of – he was part of that 2012 draft class, and we thought he was the worst one of them all. And he leaves the tutelage of Adam Gase, goes to Tennessee, and it's like, who the hell are you and what did you do with the Ryan Tannehill that – was mediocre, and then he just goes back to the coaching of Adam Gates. Like, Sam Darnold never really got a fair chance with the Jets. It's like he was set up to fail. Mm-hmm. And and so, with the opportunity, with more weapons, a better front office, a better coach, he has a chance to really do something and then he he has a lot of familiarity uh with with um the guys on the offense the stars of the offense so and i think he'll be able to develop something with dj uh on the other side so it's like you're gonna have two explosive receivers on the outside you got uh healthy mccaffrey and if he can stay healthy that's gonna be a problem right there and then, you know, as badly as Carolina needs an offensive lineman, that don't get me wrong, I still think they need to get an offensive lineman. They need to get, they really, really need to get an offensive lineman. But, um, hey, if Kyle Pitts is right there at number eight, I ain't opposed to another receiver, but that's just me being in the fantasy world. Man, so don't mind best me. to take the sure thing <laughs> and get that damn offensive lineman. If you can get, <laughs> if you can get your boy from Oregon and move one of your good tackles down in the guard, yeah, then I think you'll be straight. Yeah, but um, I, I know I, I, I mean, you do have a couple. I mean, you got 
uh, Sewell out of Oregon, you got Slater out of Northwestern. Uh, those two are the best two linemen in the draft. Uh, yeah, I think if you can move Little to guard, put Sewell on the left side, yeah, that, or even move Daryl Williams into the right guard spot, yeah, that would be even, that'd be something to watch out for right there. Yeah. Um, but fantasy, fantasy world, though, I, I want to live in there. I want to live there, too. Um, you know, hey, I, I, I don't mind a Pitts or a Devontae Smith either. So, but I'll stick with what we need. <laughs> um, your team was the only team that made some moves in the offseason for a quarterback. The Washington football team, they have uh, enlisted the services of Fitzmagic. Ryan Fitzpatrick has signed on to be the quarterback of the Washington football team. So we're going to uh, go with another journeyman, but one that's a little bit more um, healthier, healthier, and has a little has a stronger arm and a and a go get it, risk it mentality. And Ryan Fitzpatrick, um, this is I, I already know this is going to take me back to the Rex Grossman days where I'm going to be watching these games, and when the games start, I'm going to say, okay, if this is a game where you're going to have interceptions, Fitzpatrick, go ahead and throw them in the first quarter, get them out of the way. So when we come in back in the fourth quarter, I won't have to worry like, oh, snap, he ain't throwing no interception yet. <laughs> and we're driving in for the game-winning touchdown, and we're at the, like, 15, and he tries to thread one in, and it gets picked off. Go ahead and get those out the way in the first quarter because then, you know, you give us enough time to come back and recover. But um, yeah, it's definitely going to be a, a upgrade over Alex Smith just due, like you said, to the health, just to maybe he might be able to last uh, a majority of the season. Uh, plus, we already know Fitzpatrick is going to risk, you know, he's going to risk the ball. He's going to throw interceptions, but he's also going to make some great throws and put some throws in some tight spots. Uh, Washington has tried to upgrade their receiving core. They've added Curtis Samuels uh, from the Panthers. They also got Ryan Humphreys at the uh, behest of Ryan Fitzpatrick, who said that Humphreys was one of the smarter players that he played with uh, during his time in the NFL. So Washington went out and signed him as well. So we will see what the new look offense uh, of the Washington football team can produce uh, this upcoming season, if they can uh, get to where they can average around 24 points a game, 24 to 7, 24 to 27 points a game, and the defense improves uh, with another year together, another year under the coordination of Jack Del Rio, then uh, yeah, this could be a, a, a very good season. Uh, that first place schedule is going to be kind of daunting. Because, uh, you know, you're going to have to run up against the Green Bays and the Kansas Cities and, you know, the first place teams in, in each division that you play. But, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, with Fitzpatrick there, if the weapons are uh, can mesh and they can, you know, make enough plays and score enough points, I think the defense can, you know, can do their thing and generate enough pressure, cause enough turnovers that, uh, you know, they could – have a chance to make the playoffs again. I don't know if they're going to win the division. Um, Dallas and New York, uh, you know, they got a lot better too. So, uh, but it's going to definitely be a chance for three teams to go to the playoffs out of the NFC East this year. 
Yeah, that division will definitely go back from being the NFC lease to uh, back to respectability, hopefully. So, and uh, the wild Taylor. card is Jalen Hurts. I, I, we're counting Philly out just because of how they ended last year, and you know, just to kind of disarray through this Carson Wentz uh, trade and everything they've been going through. But if they can write themselves, and Jalen Hurts can get a chance to really go out there and improve on what he was doing. Uh, at the end of last season, you, you never know, man. Philly might be there to the end, or at least a nuisance of enough where it's like, oh, they just knocked somebody out, you know, the last three weeks of the season. Yeah, playing the spoil, playing the spoiler, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I think this is going to – the offseason's already been very interesting, so – I can't wait to see what the draft comes about in a few weeks. And and then, uh, you know, the 17th game, which I'm not a fan of. but One less uh, preseason game. I'll trade that. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it was bound to happen. We knew it was – we knew they'd been talking about it. So, it was only a matter of time that it was going to happen. So. Right, right. Uh, with the turning of the calendar to April, that means that opening day of Major League Baseball has come and gone. So baseball is back in full swing. Except for the Mets and the Nationals. Yeah, yeah, because the Nationals can't play nobody because the Nationals have COVID issues. They put 10 players on the designated list today uh, with COVID issues. Um but in a move that was very surprising, Major League Baseball removed this year's All-Star game from Atlanta to Coors Field due to new state voting laws that have been passed in Georgia. Uh, basically, uh, they just disenfranchised all you know minority and black people in Georgia right in front of everybody's eyes in 2021. Jim Crow 2.0. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, and nobody has been able to stop it so hopefully somebody puts a you know supreme court challenge to it once you know it comes into law but um mlb rob manford uh basically saying hey you know i'm saying this is not what we want to you know be representing or show that we may be in favor of so they pulled the game from atlanta and it was announced today that coors field will be the site of this year's all-star game so the uh, home run derby just got more interesting uh, oh yeah that um <laughs> based off this information but uh what do you what do you, what do you think this uh you know mlb you know trying to be progressive getting out a- ahead of the situation for once um some people are saying like hey you know instead of removing it why couldn't you keep it in atlanta and then you know make the game be like a voting pool or figure out some type of way to bring awareness or, 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 you know, help the situation instead of just canceling things altogether. I think they saw the precedence with the NBA situation in uh, Charlotte that year for the, uh, the uh, McCourt. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they were like, okay, let's, Let's just be proactive and get this out the way. I mean, we don't want no issues in terms of getting this, getting shown that we're in favor of this controversy when we're clearly not, especially 
uh, when we're trying to improve diversity and show diversity, uh, this would be hypocritical to what we're trying to do. So I applaud the move that they made. I think it's um, it's the right move to make. And, and it's really funny how uh, these politicians always seem to say, keep politics out of sports, but then they're the first ones accepting money from these same organizations, these sports organizations. So it's like, pick a side, pick a struggle here. Exactly, exactly. Uh, the Houston Astros, <laughs> people being mean to them because they you got fans in the stands and everybody had forgot that they cheated their way to a World Series and now the fans are letting them have it. Um, everybody on the Astros is just, you know, feeling the impact of this. Dusty Baker put out a statement yesterday just talking about, you know, hey, people paid their penalties. Um, you know, the fans just need to let it go. It's in the past and let it stay there. But, you know. Oh, they not doing that. None of the players got in trouble. So, nah, the, the, the fans is right. like, nah, we ain't forgot. So yeah, right. Houston is 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 finding it uh, uh, very tough out on the road uh, so far to start yeah, this. They're, and they're going to find it, especially how they going. What's going to happen when fans are actually allowed to be in LA? <laughs> especially since they're the team that got screwed out of the World Series. So yeah, if you think it's bad now, and if everything does improve. Yeah, what's you? What's gonna happen when you go to uh, Los Angeles to play the Dodgers? So Houston, these guys need to just man up, take these lumps. You already, you already, you got, you got caught. You still got to keep your World Series, and like you just said, nobody got punished for it. So yeah, they deserve every ounce of Viratol that comes their way when they're on the road. In a inning that I actually personally watched myself, Shoatani threw a couple of pitches up in the hundreds and then hit a home run as he was the starting pitcher and the DH for the Angels against the White Sox. I think it's like the first time since like 1902 a pitcher has batted second. Um... I know it was the first he was the first player to first pitcher to hit a home run in the American League since the designated batter, nineteen sixty seven. So yeah, there is a lot going on with Shoatani on uh Sunday night. And then he left the game with uh, a minor injury. But uh Joe Madden is now the manager of the Angels and you know that he is unconventional. So all of the restrictions that they had uh on Shoatani about him um not being able to hit a couple of days before starts or after starts or anything like that, or, you know, hitting and pitching in the same game, those are all out of the window. Joe Man is like, this is one of my best players, so I'm going to use him as much as I can. And, uh, yeah, he he definitely delivered, man. He hit a bomb. Lazy. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a rocket. It's like, man. Um, because I was at the, uh, I was uh, meeting my buddy uh, for some drinks, and they had Steph, 
against Atlanta on one TV where he was going ridiculous. And then uh, mm-hmm. the baseball game came up, and uh, I was like, oh, they're going to let Ashley get that Shotani hit in the game he's pitching in. I was like, I really got to watch this first at bat and second pitch. It was like, bang. Oh. It's like, man. Yeah, that, that he's something special, and that's going to be a very fun. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting season. Um, in that regard, yeah, uh, and hopefully his health holds up, right. so we can really see what he can do for a full one sixty two. Right, right. And our last bit of news here on the score uh, for Major League Baseball: Your Amazons, the Mets, they signed Francisco Lindor to a ten year thirty. $340 million contract, excuse me, $22 million signing bonus. Um, so they've got Lindor in the fold uh, yes, for the next decade. Um, and hopefully he continues to produce the way that he has the first five years of his career uh, throughout the next 10 and is the cornerstone to the rebuilding of New York Mets. Absolutely. I'm. Um... I am very happy about this. Uh, It's the first major move of the Cohen era. We don't have to worry about the the cheapness of the Wilpons anymore. An owner that wants to win. An owner that wants to, that has the capital and the resources. Uh, it's uh, It's definitely a newfound feeling. Uh, But that newfound feeling kind of faded pretty quickly. Uh, when I got reminded of how the bullpen issues still continue to haunt the Mets when they lost to the Phillies yesterday. So at the same time, there's so much happiness and and um, happiness and optimism for the future. The president continues to really show, hey, you're still the freaking Mets at the end of the day. <laughs> so, um, but... Uh, Lindor is something special. Um, I think, I think because of the the uh, the way everything was played last year, his numbers did go down. But that's not going to be a that won't be an issue. And I I think as we go forward, so. All right, all right. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to you for your final thoughts and your shout outs and thank yous. Uh, shout out to my family. Shout out to uh, you, Don. Glad to be back in the saddle on KTS. Uh, I have, I think my final thought I kind of alluded to earlier uh, was the women's uh, title game and not only just the, the fun of the game, and we really had to appreciate how hard these these uh, women student athletes work, and we need to give them a lot of props, a lot of credit. Um, it's really a great thing to to see, and there were a lot of great games, great competitive games in this women's tournament all the way down to the national championship. You had upsets, the favorites who 
who um, the favorites who were uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, that we usually are used to seeing dominate. They were out. The um, we had some new powers. We had um, we had Arizona winning it all. So I really commend the student athletes, the women student athletes, uh, for doing their thing, doing what's uh, not just not just for the their passion for the game, their hard work. Uh, we just really got to give them a lot of credit. We got to put more women's sports on the national stage as well uh, and appreciate what they do because their product, they, they work they work as hard as the men do, probably even harder. And we have to recognize that. We really have to normalize that, recognize that, and value that too. All right. All right. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. Uh, my final thought is going to be on Paul Pierce. Man's got fire on his day off up on the Instagram live, just living his best life on a Friday night. Had a little drink, had a little smoke, let the little, you know, little shakers come by because, you know, it is COVID. He don't want to be out there in the club, so he can bring them, to, you know, he got the means and ways to bring them to the house, got them to the house. They was just enjoying their Friday. And then somebody had to post it up on Twitter. Mickey Mouse seen it. And the next thing you know, ESPN and Paul Pierce have parted ways. If you gotta go, that's one hell of a way to lose a job. Yeah, and everybody knows that I, I am a Paul. Everybody knows Paul Pierce is like my favorite Jayhawk ever, and he's one of the reasons why I gravitated towards the Celtics. I always said wherever he goes, I go, and yeah. But that man makes it really hard to defend him. <laughs> 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 He really makes it so hard to to uh, to. It's just like, bro, man, I, I I can't not defend you when you're doing stupid, when you're doing reckless stuff. I I wish it was on a, I wish it was on a. Um, I mean, it happened on a Friday night, and he got fired on his day off. But I was really hoping. That it was during, it was on a Sunday during the uh, verses with, um, <laughs> so I'd be like, everybody was noticing that. And, and then, you know, 350 people were only watching Paul Pierce. And uh, yeah, that, that, I still, I still am a Pierce fan, but he makes it really difficult for me to, really makes it difficult for me to be like, yeah, um, how you defend this? <laughs> See, that's 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 the number one lesson in the social media game. Everything ain't fit for the live, y'all. You got to know well. that somebody is out there waiting to snitch, especially if you're famous and you work for somebody like ESPN who already is, you know, tries to give off that super family, you know, we're owned by Disney. So, you know, they got all types of corporate 
you know, stuff in there. They you can get fired for not representing. You know, they got all these clauses in there, so you can't really be out here living reckless like that. You know what I'm saying? Right. And especially yeah. when you know people hate you as it is, so they definitely gonna. If someone and I know it had to be someone on Twitter that hates Paul Pierce and just wanted to give him like that ultimate like heave ho. So. They knew what they were doing. Yeah, man. So good luck to Paul Pierce, man. Uh, wherever he he lands next, um, you know. So yeah, hopefully, I just hope he enjoyed himself to the utmost uh, when, when he wasn't <laughs> on Instagram Live uh, on last Friday night. And uh, you know, hopefully, he's not regretting any of his decisions right now. Um, I just like to give a shout out to Dwayne for joining me here on Another Score. I know it's been uh, crazy, um, you know, you personally with uh, the flooding in Nashville and the weather you guys yeah. have had uh, this, yeah. this fall and spring. Uh, so glad to hear that, you know, you've been safe throughout all of that turmoil. Um, Absolutely. As we get closer sure. to football season, y'all, we'll be more consistent. But right now, you know, we'll crank it up for the NBA playoffs as well. But it's kind of getting into that little doldrum point. Um, right. Let me talk about the Masters if something good happens um, in the next week or so since that is being played this week. Um, so, you know, again, we'll try to keep it to, you know, a couple of weeks. We'll check back in with you guys and uh, give you the latest when it comes to the landscape and the world of sports. So continue to support us over on the CSPN at CSPN.us. Uh, look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitch Radio. All I have to do is search for KTS Pod dash the CSPN. So for my co-host, Dwayne, I'm your host, Don DeLorente. And now you know the score.